Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hey everybody, welcome to the 10% True Podcast. Quick message from me before you get stuck in. This podcast is free, so there's no advertising. I don't monetize it on YouTube. You don't have to sit through any annoying adverts, and I don't even ask for any money through Patreon. But if you could, in exchange for that, drop me a like, leave a comment, share my content, and if you're listening to the podcast version, maybe leave a review of the channel, that would be hugely appreciated. It will help me to grow my audience, which is really what I'm trying to achieve. Anyway, with that, I'll let you get back to listening. Enjoy. Sly, thanks for joining us here on 10% True. It's great to have you on the channel. Oh, my pleasure, Steve. Happy New Year uh, to you and your family. Uh, great to see you. Thanks, and to you as well. Um, so I think there are a couple of firsts here. You're the first Marine Corps uh, pilot that I've interviewed, and you're definitely the first Marine Corps pilot who got a MiG-29 kill in an Air Force F-15 that I've interviewed, uh, which is obviously all to come later. But uh, let's start at the beginning. Um, how did well, you... we are the few. We are the few and the proud, by the way. So there's yeah. Right. How, how, how did you end up joining the Marine Corps? Then what was your your route into the, the service? Uh, um, honestly, and, and I'm just, this is pure, even though it is 10%, this is pure honesty. Um, I really, uh, had, uh, I had, uh, a couple degrees in college that were in my mind worthless. They were all with business and I was not excited about those at all. Um, I went, I finished my, uh, college, uh, time at Arizona state and we used to run out. I used to grab guys and go out to Luke air force base for the case of beer and, uh, sit at the end of the runway and watch fighters come in 104s f-15s and uh i just go this is incredible like this is i mean why would i want to do anything else than fly fighters uh even with these degrees and quite frankly i did get a job for six months uh it was a temporary job with dell web corporation which is a big corporation out of phoenix and um you know, the donut truck would come by at 7.30, the guy pushing the donuts, and you'd eat donuts and read the Wall Street Journal. Then you'd go to some lunch, and you'd go work out, and then you'd do the afternoon. And and I went, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life? I go, no way. I just, there's no way I can sit behind this desk and do accounting. I was doing auditing, which was interesting, but uh, not, I don't think it was my wheelhouse. So, um I did call the Air Force. They were very kind. Uh, they offered me a navigator position, which uh, is, uh, no offense to navigators, but that's not what I had in mind. 
the Navy and the Marine Corps. Uh, I didn't really, I, I, I did a little research on both of them. And the Marine Corps just really hit me as the home where I should be. It was, uh, I guess, maybe as, a, as someone who likes to serve and serve others, uh, the Marine Corps is, with its combined unit, is everyone's a rifleman, everyone's a grunt, everyone's a Marine, and you're there to back your brother or sister. You are there as part of a cohesive unit uh, that's pretty bad. I mean, just, just a, I've never met a Marine, didn't even, my first Marine was the DI, and I'll tell you that story, that was not pretty. Um, but it, the Marine Corps seemed a good fit for, I would say I was kind of a hard scrabble kid from the suburbs of Chicago, you know, paper boy, hockey player, all that stuff. And, uh, didn't mind mixing it up And the Marine Corps, uh, when I saw the mission of the F4, which is not only air to air, but air to ground, I thought, okay, you're supporting troops on the ground. You might get a chance to shoot at somebody in the air. This is where I want to go. And so I pursued uh, the Marine Corps and uh, got lucky enough to go into OCS. And the OCS story is, if you want me to continue on that, is uh, pretty ugly. Uh, he, uh, my OSO, who is a great guy, uh, did not brief me on how I should show up at Quantico, Virginia. He just told me to get on a bus in Chicago. And I, uh, I did not do that. I had my own business uh, painting houses in the summers and had, had a car, had money and not a lot, but I go, well, you know, I'm just going to drive to Quantico. So I drive and I park in an area called officers parking. I don't know anything about it. And I just parked my car there. And I, I, I never forget this. I walked up to the barracks and all these guys are getting off the bus and they're all wearing khakis, long sleeve shirts, and they have nice shoes on. I show up, and I was in good shape back then, I show up with an IZOD shirt on, the little gator, uh, seersucker pants, which if you don't know what those are, they're blue and, and uh, blue and white and like linen. And I had uh, tasseled, you know, Basswegian shoes with no socks. And uh, that's how I showed up and immediately knew I was out of place, got in line all the way in the back and when Gunny Claggett, uh, he was looking over our new group with the sergeant instructor, he saw me and it was uh, it was not a great relationship to start with. So. Can, can we go back a little bit then? So so you, you had seen these uh, these fighters flying around. You'd found out a little bit about the, the F-4 mission uh, for the Marine Corps. Yeah. Um, was there, and, and you sort of recognized then that there's sort of everyone's an infantryman, everyone's a grunt. Was there, was there a part of you that had any trepidation then about joining a service where maybe you would end up fighting in the trenches instead of fighting in the air? I mean, one of the things I've heard about the Marines, and I don't know if it's true because I really have had very little exposure to Marine Corps um, air crew, is that it can be difficult to have a career as a fighter pilot in the Marines because you do get sent back to you know, sort of serve on, on, you know, with ground, ground-based units and, and maybe not everybody stays and spends their whole career flying fighters. What, what, what did you think about it and what did the truth turn out to be? I, I did not uh, see that as an obstacle at all, Steve. I, I um, honestly, 
uh, you're so focused on what you want to do. I, I just, uh, as soon as I got in the Marine Corps, and once I got through the culture shock, because I had very long hair, uh, and uh, once once I got through all the, the uh, you know, break it down and make you a team, I really understood the the extraordinary brotherhood you get. So wherever the Marine, and it's the Marine Corps is very clear, um, you know, it was almost to the point, hey, and I was not married. I was only whatever age I was, but it was basically at the Marine Corps. Once you have a wife, they'll issue you one. Uh, the Marine Corps, uh, but the camaraderie and the history of uh, the United States Marine Corps is to this day just staggering, regardless of the current events or anything. It's just the history is phenomenal. And to be part of that, and at the end of the day, when you're in OCS, which is not boot camp, I wouldn't even compare it to that. Um, they still want you out. They will weed you out. And plenty of guys left. Uh, they only want people, but there was no way I was leaving. I mean, that's just, you know, you set a goal and you go, I, I got this. I want to be part of this team. Um, but I never thought about the future. It was, you know, it was just getting through the next day. And so that was, if the Marine Corps wanted me to go clean heads, I go clean heads. And I did that plenty in OCS. Um, uh, but that's, that's, that's kind of where I was. Once I found something that it was like when I, I played a little hockey in college and, and you find a, a great team that you're really stoked with and everyone's hitting on all, all cylinders and you don't want to leave that. You want to be part of that. And, and you don't want to be, the least part of it would be the best part of it. So that's how the Marine Corps was. You know, you, you want to, I could never run 18, uh, uh, three miles in 18 minutes. I could, I mean, I guess I'm short and my legs just won't go that fast. I don't know, but you know, I sure will try my best uh, to get that perfect PFT score just because the Marine Corps wants me to. I mean, not a robot, but um there is a sense of assimilation that is uh, a little bit difficult to describe, but it's there for your entire life. So once a Marine, always a Marine. So do you, do you then learn to be an infantryman then before you step foot in a classroom to start doing academics around aviation? I mean, oh, aviation is not even, not even in your wheelhouse. Uh, OCS, they don't even talk about airplanes. OCS is to make you a Marine officer. Uh, and it's funny because in the I had a picture of a YF-17 Cobra that had Marines on one side, Navy on the other. And guys that I know that were general officers years ago, this, you know, I'm an old guy, said, we'll never forget you had that in your footlocker because I said, I'm going to fly that thing. And the Marine Corps hadn't even bought it yet. I mean, the Marine Corps, you know, so I said, I'm going to fly that thing. Um, but, um, I'm sorry, Steve, go back to your question again. So I just, I, I get down these trails. Yeah, so, so, so did you, cause I, I'm trying to think about, you know, sort of understand the emotional and the psychological, I mean, obviously there was a spiritual journey, um, but the emotional mm -hmm. and the psychological journey to getting to a, to an airplane, I think one of the things that maybe you think about joining the Navy or, well, not necessarily the Navy, but let's say the air force, if you get, you get a pilot slot you know, you're pretty much going to go and then fly an aeroplane, right? So, or where could, you could right. end up flying a helicopter. But, you know, is there a, an element of risk then where you go to the Marine Corps that actually if they're going to teach you to be no a soldier question. first, you don't get oh, through no that? Question. No, the Marine Corps is 
definitely, I, you know, this, please don't, my, the Marines, please don't take offense by this, but uh, it's one step above going to jail. Um, they're going to, they're going to put you in what they want to put you in. You are here to support the Marine Corps, not your own best wishes or your desires. Uh, should you desire to do something else after we put you somewhere, uh, we'll do our best to put you in that position. So um, I was lucky enough to enter uh, through OCS, through the aviation program, which guaranteed me the opportunity to go fly an airplane in training. It did not guarantee that I would be an aviator. It guaranteed that I would go to training. And if I busted out, then I'm going to go to Motor T or be a cannon cocker or, or a grunt or something like that. And you owe the Marine Corps. Uh, and that's how it works. And I had several roommates like that that just, you know, they kind of get in. We, we might talk about that because the training, uh, we'll talk about flight training maybe in a little bit, but the, um, but that's basically the mentality of the Marine Corps. And you buy into that and you go, okay, it's, uh, it's a narrow, uh, it's like the eye of a needle that I'm going to go through to get there uh, out of, you know, 175,000 people in the Marine Corps. Uh, this is where I this is where I'm driving to, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do my level best to get there. Yeah, so aviation and OCS is it's talked about a little bit you know, it's a, as one of the MOSs you might be able to get, but after you graduate and become an officer, um, then you go to the basic school, and the basic school was I think six months long, and it teaches you every MOS that the Marine Corps has. And What's an MOS? Uh, military Operations Specialty. It's, uh, it's, it is who you are. Um, uh, I think that's what it, uh, MOS is. You know, I know all these acronyms. I never know what they stand for sometimes. Uh, but uh, I think that's it. You know, it might be specification. I, I'm not sure. Uh, my apologies to those who will know. Um, but that is basically how you are known. You know, if you're if you're an 0301, you're a grunt. If you're an 0811, you're a cannon cocker. You're a you know, artilleryman, and and that's how you're known. So, so, so when did you start flying? Then, how, so you did your six months of basic, and did you then start flying? No, I well, I, honestly, uh, we rolled back a minute when I was at Arizona State, and I loved watching all those fighters going into Luke. I. Uh, I met, I went down to Glendale Airport and I did their I, I talked to one of the guys that owned the airport and I said hey I'd like to learn how to fly and uh, and it's expensive I, I mean really for guys that are out there trying to do this on their own it's really expensive I said well how about if I do the your I was an accounting guy I go how about if I do your books so I get some flight time and so I had maybe five ten hours and then I got in a really nice airplane a little Mooney with some guy I never met. And we, uh, we went through the Grand Canyon. In fact, we did a little wind check on the south rim. And then this guy just rose inverted, basically, and pulls down towards the Colorado River. And he looks over at me and goes, you like this? And I go, this is freaking great. And with the coolest voice, he goes, try doing this five times the speed. That's what I do. I'm a phantom driver. So he was a guy out of loop, just in training other, you know, you know not like moonlighting, but he was a phantom uh, pilot instructor, uh, F4 instructor out of loop. And I was sold. I just go, oh, I got to do this. I mean, this is what I want to do. So, yeah, there's no flying done in the basic school. You go through there and then they send you to Pensacola. 
and uh, Pensacola is the home of naval aviation and also the mother-in-law. And I will tell you, my wife is from there, so I've got to talk really nice about it. Um, but, uh, and I live real close to it. We were just there last night. So, um, but you go to Pensacola, you go through a little aviation indoctrination. Um, then you generally go to, up to Milton Field is where I went or Softly Field in the older days. And uh, then you start flying. And that is where I learned that how the, every flight, you're being graded. The stress is, it's not self-imposed stress a little bit, um, but if you want to get the airplane you want to fly, so when you're in primary flight training, it's, you're either going rotary wing or fixed wing. And fixed wing includes uh, the four fans of freedom, the Hercules, the greatest airplane probably ever made. Um, but I didn't want to fly it. Um, and um, so you realize that every day you're out there flying, your grades stack up. So how you finish in the class is very important for where you will go next. Will you get jets? Will you fly helicopters, go over to HD-18 in Milton and fly uh, rotary wing? Or will you end up going to Kingsville or Meridian at the time? Uh, uh, and Beeville, which is no longer there, and uh, go fly fixed wing. So I learned immediately, I did not have a very good first run at primary flight train. In fact, two of my three roommates uh, dropped out uh, because they could not take it. So they're hanging around, going to the beach every day, having a great time party. And I'm trying to study, you know, how to do an Immelman and a T-34 and the instructors that I had were, um, I would say, less than gracious if you didn't want to fly what they flew. And it was, it was part of the hazing pro process, Steve. There is no question in my mind. Uh, you'd be walking to the airplane. they go, what do you want to fly? I said, well, I want to fly fighters. <laughs> fighters. You suck and blow guys. What the, you know, you got to fly. You got to fly rotary wing. You got to protect the troops, you know. And I said, what about the Harrier? And they go. Well, that's a good airplane. But anyway, uh, you know, so really, if you didn't fly, if you didn't want to fly a Cobra and you were flying with a Cobra instructor, it was brutal. And it got to the point, two of my roommates, uh, they they left and and I I was ready to leave. I said, I, I got a little flying time before I came in the Marine Corps. I'll just go to Motor T or something. And I'll, I, these, these guys are, these guys are brutal. It was a beat down. And you, and you're, yeah, I had good grades. I had great grades. But it was like the stress and the, the dislike. It was, and here, these are rotary wing guys trying to get their fixed wing time so they could probably go to the airlines. I mean, I have no idea what they were doing, but they were angry men uh, and they did not want you. Uh, I mean, it was, it was, it was rough. Uh, and I'm just going to be honest. I didn't like it at all. So, so was it rough in, in the cockpit then where they, um, oh, yeah. just, oh. just their instructional style was uh -huh. aggressive or. It was, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not painting a broad brush on Marine uh, instructors because uh, we had Navy there. It was a Navy base. I mean, uh, and so it was equal numbers. Um, maybe I just got, you know, a couple of the black parts in the group, uh, so to speak. Um, so I ended up taking some time off. I had great grades, but I was ready to leave too. I thought, this is ridiculous. This is not what I thought Marine aviation would be like. I don't expect to be beaten down to parade rest every time I get in the damn airplane. And that was happening. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, and you can still fly, but you're you know if you're under the bag in the back and you're shaking, uh, or you're, you're you know you got someone just wrapping and throwing stuff over at you, you're just going, well, this is not conducive to great aviation. And this is I did I just thought it was part of the harassment package until it got too too bad, and and I uh, I walked away. I went home. I talked to the my uh, the Marine, senior marine there, and I said. Uh, he knew that my two roommates, two of my roommates were quitting. And I said, I'm, I'm going to go home. And he gave me 30 days leave so I could get my head squared away and figure out what I wanted to do. And that's a, no kidding. I was ready to leave. I go, this is just nonsense. And it's not like that anymore. I know uh, it just happened. Maybe it was just me, but um, uh, I came back, actually got a Navy instructor, smoked the program. And up, you know, I don't, you know, nobody cares about, you know, there some groups talk about distinguished graduates. I know that I was, uh, I was going to go fly fixed wing fighters, uh, or at least get the chance to fly jets when I finished there. Cause I, I got my head on right and understood what they were trying to do. And the flying aspect was easy. The flying, the flying's not hard. I mean, it's just like driving a car. So that, that was a very tough time where, I never would have entered up flying. I probably would just, who knows where I would have ended up, but uh, uh, God bless that Marine that gave me that time off. So I could go back home and just kind of get my head on right and go, this is, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to come back and I'm going to do this. My roommates were gone. Uh, and then I uh, got a decent instructor, actually supportive, you know, hey, you're, I've never understood that attitude where you're trying to break people down, but um, it got a good instructor, a couple of good instructors and just uh, bottom line, Steve, it went really well. And I smoked the program and got out of there um, and left that in the rear view mirror. So you went to what, T2s, Buckeyes? Yeah, I went to T2s in Kingsville. Um, and that was fantastic. Loved that uh, little airplane. Um, first time I ever did a Lumschebach in my life which is Russian for headache and it does hurt. Uh, but we did it quite often. Uh, I had can some you describe great Marine. Huh? Can, you, can you describe a launcher back? Can you describe it? Uh, no, you know, cause the instructor would basically push you through it. These were all Marines. Uh, I ended up flying with a lot of Marines there that I ended up being great friends with. Uh, I think once you got into, uh, intermediate jets, now you're focused. Now the weeding process is out. You're going to, we, we want you to succeed. Uh, and, uh, so I fly with, so, so lumps, all I remember is, uh, you get the nose really high, pretty high, uh, you, uh, pull the uh, power back and then you push full stick forward, right, full rudder left and the airplane just tumbles <laughs> and it sucks. I mean, it's just, it's painful and stuff's flying out of there from like, I mean, the airplane's 50 years old. So you got some, you know, you got some pens, you know, like an, like an old quill pen flies up underneath the seat or something. So. It, um, it was fun. Uh, it was a great airplane to fly. You got to do a little gunnery pattern stuff and go to the boat. That was a blast. Real easy. Uh, and then I, I went on to the TA-4. So, uh, so let's, let's, let's not talk about the Skyhawk just yet. Let me, let me just okay. pick, you up, pick you up on what you just said. Go to the boat. It's real easy. Um, there is, you know, there's, there's, there's that infamous footage of a T-2 coming in on final approach and stalling and it flips over and crashes into the the island right. on the carrier and obviously right. um I, I remember reading 
a book I think called Triple Sticks by an A4 driver in Vietnam, and he said that when they were training the instructors, that when he went when he went to jets, the instructor said, "Look at the person to the left of you. Look at the person to the right of you. By the time you finish, you know, one or both of them is going to be dead." Um, right. so, 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 can you qualify that a little bit? Then it was real easy. I mean, what were? Yeah, the, well, uh, I, I would say that the. Um, I was stunned to find out that there's no instructor in the back seat. Your first landing on a carrier. Uh, you know why waste a good instructor if the student can't fly the airplane? So we'll just we'll just let the student crash. And um, but no, it um, yeah we never had an instructor in the back. Obviously, because the sight picture from the back is so much different from the front when you're flying this very specific glide path. Um, but you are so well prepared. It's 30 days at least at night flying uh, field carrier landing practices. So you, uh, I think it's 600 feet, 400 feet in the turn, roll out at 300 feet and the Navy guys don't rip me on this. And then you fly basically a uh, totally on speed. You've got an angle of attack indicator uh, that, and you stay in the amber the whole time. You don't want red, slow, uh, green, you're too fast. And, and uh, you fly this nailed, you're working hard, but it's not that hard. I mean, man, Marines can do it, so it ain't that hard. Um, but you practice so much that when you finally – I think the craziest thing is uh, – so I did mine on the Lexington in the A4 – I mean, in the uh, T2. And I think the worst part was being in the Marshall stack. Uh, so the Marshall stack is you're sitting at altitude waiting for your vol time, your vulnerability, when you're going to go in and get your two bounces. And then if the LSO landing signal officer likes the way you're flying your pattern, uh, he'll let you know to drop the hook. And now you're going to get a real trap. And, uh, but I will tell you, sitting at 26,000 feet, looking down for the first time, you know, you're just a wing. I didn't dummy wingman out there flying off the, the lead safe, which is, you know, an instructor. And then you take a gander down, you look and you're, 26,000 feet above something that looks no bigger than your computer right now. And you just go, huh. all right, just remember. And so, you know, it's, you come into the overhead and it's just so rote, remote, so rote, remembered skill set. Um, and all you have to do, if you focus on what you're supposed to focus on and not look at all the people on the sides or look at the island and go, man, this is really cool. If you just focus on that minute, you'll be just fine. If you start, you know, if you're looking at shiny balls and stuff and looking at all, everything else, you, you, you get waved off too many times you go back to the beach. So it was not, uh, it, it, T2 was a wonderful little airplane to bring aboard the boat. And nothing to it. Can you describe its characteristics a little bit then in terms of handling qualities? There's, you know, one of the things you hear about landing on, on the boat is that, you know, throttle response times matter because if you're behind the power curve, you might sink and hit the back of the of the ship yeah. and, oh. and so on. How, how did the airplane handle? What was the engine throttle response like? Uh, I was, it was it was a turbojet, so uh, instead of a fan, so it was not, it was immediate. You, you didn't get caught, like the A7 guys, we, they just come to the boat. Uh, when they were going through the rag and that motor took some time to wind up. So uh, LSOs are always looking for exhaust coming out of the back of the airplane. And if they don't see it, they're sending you around because they know that you're way back on the power 
and you're gliding in and can be done. Uh, but you've got the whole idea is to have enough thrust ready to go to get around in case you get a hook, hook slap or a hook skip or you break a wire or something like that. I will tell you the amazing thing. One of the guys in my class in T2s uh, got a cold cat shot. Was it cold cat? No, 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 no. He, uh, uh, he had his hook down and uh, it was hook skip all the way and he didn't have enough power to take off. So he went off the angle on the Lex in the water, ejected. And this is a no kidding. And you never see this today, but I'll never forget. He got back. He got back. He didn't get hurt. And uh, he was in one of our briefings three days later. I looked down at his boots and they're covered with salt stains. He's still wearing the same boots that he jumped out of uh, with. So that back, you know, these days, hell, they put you through some kind of recovery program and you might not see an airplane for eight months. This is like three days later and this guy goes out and just nails it and finishes it. Wasn't his fault what happened, but um, that was a different day. Did you cool. think um, at all and about risk? Did you think at all about your own mortality at any point in this journey to to jets? No, no, no way. No way. You're you, When you're 23 years old, and if you're not bulletproof, then you shouldn't be doing what you... I mean, it's... That failure was never an option. I mean, it was just, I think that's the way I, I grew up, uh, just play, playing hockey. I wasn't the biggest guy, but I was probably the fastest. And, uh, you know, you just, you no, that's a target. That's a goal. I'm going to achieve it. And I'm not worried about anything. I am not. That is none of that. Now, as an old guy, and they say you want to go back to the boat. I mean, when I was in the reserves, we can talk about that later. I go, no, nah, I ain't going back. No way. That's for young guys, not for yeah. That's a, it's a it's definitely a young person's game. But you've got to have that mentality. If you think if, if you're nervous, I mean, you can be nervous, but once you're in the airplane, you do exactly the way you've been taught. And hey, anyone can do it. I can teach. I can teach my well, maybe not myself. I can teach anyone. You can teach anyone to do it. Mm. It's not that hard. Again, showing my ignorance around the. You know the use case for Marine Corps um, pilots getting carrier qualified. Obviously, you know they they deploy on aircraft carriers. But were you expecting then um, later in your career as a uh, a Marine fighter pilot to be flying off of the boat, or were you expecting to be land based? Um, Absolutely, I think you know I, honestly, and I we can talk about it. My uh, I flew the Hornet back in '84. Um, I started in '84 and. Uh, the Marine Corps was really, the Marine Corps has always been part of uh, carrier-based aviation, as far as I know, for a very long time. Uh, so there was always the opportunity to go on a boat. And when I uh, was in El Toro, two of the three squadrons were on a ship, the Coral Sea. They ended up uh, having some interesting engagements over there in Libya and uh, always knew that could be an option. Uh, so that was nothing, but that's, you know, when you're a student, that's kind of far off in your mind. And it, that's like I said, it's Steve, if the Marine Corps wants to send me somewhere, I'm going. I mean, that's, that's the boat sounds great. They have great food and, uh, you know, a good place to live, but hanging out with a bunch of guys, having a good time and, and flying a mission. That sounds pretty good to me. Even if you are Marines, you know, and the LSOs, you know, Marines are Marines aboard the boat are probably not the greatest. Uh, and then the Navy is incredible. 
uh, you know, they're incredible. That's what they do. Hmm. And we do it part time, but we try to hold our own. So I, I stopped you from from continuing to talk about the TA four than the the Skyhawk. What was your and was that was that the first real fighter in your mind then that you were gonna you were gonna fly even though it was in, in a training capacity? Yeah, it was a it was a great great airplane. Um, it was so small, the cockpit was so tiny that honestly you had to turn your shoulders either left or right when you put the lid down. Uh, to get in there. And once you get in there, you go, I mean, you're wearing that airplane. That is, uh, uh, you know, there are other airplanes, they're like bathtubs. This thing is, you're, uh, you're part of the machine. You're strapped in and you are, you're not moving. It's like a little capsule. And it was a beautiful airplane. It flew great, had a roll rate that would just blow. I mean, if you weren't ready for it, I mean, do, I think it was 720 degrees a second, which, you know, two, two aileron. Yeah, you could really uncage your brain uh, flying that thing. It was a great, great trainer. Um, and I really enjoyed flying that. And it was a breeze to bring aboard the boat, too. That was a nice, nice airplane. What was the, what was the purpose of that then in terms of, as a building block in your training, what was what were you going to get from the Skyhawk that you couldn't get from the the Buckeye? Oh uh, well, a lot more agility. Um, it was a better bomb, bombing platform. It was actually uh, actually it was a great aggressor airplane that's still being used today. Uh, it was just a more of an advanced fighter. If you can fly the T two, then when you got into the A four, um, everything was just a little bit more advanced. It just it's uh, its performance was much greater. It was faster. Um, like I said, the roll rate was extraordinary. You couldn't do that with a straight wing airplane like the T two. Um, but then I never did a Wumschbach in an eighty four either, and I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> but it was a really uh, it was a great lead in. The Air Force has a lead in fighter program. It was a great lead in fighter. It wasn't a T thirty eight with afterburner, um, but however, it was a really nice really nice all around proven in, in Vietnam kind of airplane. And, you know, TA4s flew in, TA4Js flew in Vietnam, you know, as fast facts and stuff like that. Hmm. You're shooting Zuni rockets off of it. You, you know, it's a uh, drop bombs off of it. You know, you, you do a lot of bombing and it was a really it was a good, good lead in airplane uh, to get onto your next, your next, uh, um, airplane. So, so by this point, then you will have uh, been doing BFM, you know, basic fighter maneuvers. You'll be doing air combat um, maneuvering. You'll have done some air to ground. Have you started to get a sense of what you're good at and what you like the most out of those two missions? Uh, there was no question. I mean, I loved. Um, I, I, honestly, I loved being a wingman. Uh, when the flight lead would go, you know, and an A4 and do it, if it was a good flight lead, be, you would just fly off that wing. You could be upside down. You could be, you know, doing a barrel roll. If the flight lead was good, it was it was glorious to hold that position because that's your job. The flight lead is just doing whatever the flight lead wants to do. But you put yourself, and you know, we did the same thing. And I'm not comparing. I mean, that's how every naval aviator does this. Uh, the Blue Angels show it off very well, but every naval aviator does most of the stuff. Uh, 
and you know the high speed passes we do on our own that are illegal that's fine too but the um you know flying formation in 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 odd attitudes really taught me some things that i used later uh once i got into a real airplane uh it was more everything is so lateral you know it's either your lateral your vertical um the three-dimensional phase of flying really got me it's 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 more dynamic it's 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 an art and a science at the same time uh it's geometry and and it's just really fascinating if you can once you get into it maneuvering an airplane and when you can do it right and perfectly it's it's really neat and i i dropping bombs was no big deal i mean that's in in the later airplanes like the hornet that was hell it it does it itself i mean it's there's nothing to that but uh basic I won't call it basic, but fighter maneuvers, 1v1, and, and, and the A-4 was really good at that for an underpowered airplane. I mean, it was really good. And you, you, there were a lot of idiosyncrasies you had to learn about, but it was a, it was a good, good airplane to learn. And I knew, I knew where I was going. I mean, I was going to even fly it. I mean, my mission in life, I was going to fly F-4s or F-18s, so... Hmm. Uh, I love I love flying upside down and stuff like that. It was just just way cool. Do Do you recall? I appreciate it was a long time ago, but do you recall any of those idiosyncrasies? You know what 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 you had to sort of tame in the A four in order to get the most out of it. Well, the A four uh, the A four was definitely thrust limited, but it had great agility and you could turn it on a dime. So uh, that, but you had to do it in a graceful manner, if I can say that. And I know, I mean, I got a couple thousand hours in fighters, so I guess I can figure, you know, you can ham fist it and yank it around and you'll look like some guy trying to ride a horse, you know, yanking the horse around, but you can also treat it. You know, understand what it's going to do when the slats are going to come out at what speed the slats are going to come out and you maximize that performance with G using the one G that God gives you when you're going down. So you always got that G So this. It's just maximizing the airplane to its greatest ability. I mean, it just, it became natural. You just go, okay, this is when the slats are going to come out. Don't hand fists, don't yank on it. I mean, just let her go. And then if you depower the airplane, which I mean, you're flying when you're flying near the edge, uh, the envelope, you depart the airplane, you recover and you go, well, okay, I'm not going to do that again. Um, so a lot of lessons learned uh, in flying the A4. Uh, we had a lot of freedom in flying it uh, when we did ACM. It was a, especially because the instructors were all fleet instructors and really good, mostly Vietnam vets. And that was a lot of fun. How, how much uh, at this point then in your career, how much of this is innate how much of the ability to just fill the airplane to know how to maneuver in three dimensions to understand energy management how much of that is just you were born I, with it how much of it is learned you know and i i know this is going to sound ridiculous but i when i finally got into that phase of flying an airplane it was it was easy it was it was a no-brainer. It was it was art 
And my mom was an artist. She was a very good artist. And it was art, but it was also aggressiveness. It was also intelligence. It was, you mix with a guy with ADHD, you know, you just, it, you, you're mixing all these issues to come out with the perfect result. And the neatest thing about flying airplanes, it's almost like playing golf. You get immediate results. You know, you take a shot, you shank it. Ooh, that sucked. Uh, you hit it, you, you pure it, and then you put it on within three feet, and you go, yeah, that was, I'm supposed to do that. And that's the way when I got into airplanes uh, and really flying into airplanes, well, I always concentrated on the stuff I didn't do well uh, because you're supposed to do everything well, and you should be maximizing the heck out of that airplane. And so it did become innate, and it did become, it was like a passion. It was almost, it was... I want to, I, and you knew some of the airplanes, one slat would pop out. In fact, when you pre-flighted, they had these rollers on them. There was grease on the rollers and you go, okay, this one doesn't have enough grease on it. I guarantee you the other one's going to pop out first. And they always would. And when they pop out, when one pops out and the other one stays in, well, you, you get some yaw tendencies that will take you in another direction. So, um, but that's, it was, it, when you finally, you know, find something that you can do that you truly love, you just go, man, you can't get enough of it. I mean, you just go, it is a, it is the most, it's the greatest thing other than being married and having children that I ever, and I'm sorry to, I'm not trying to equate it that way. I just go, man, this is uh this is, this is incredible to make this airplane dance like that. And in a late, you know, we go down the years with other fighters making big old fighters move and make them dance. That was a real art. So we're just getting into, you know, a TA4, great aggressor, great airplane, uh, lots of maneuverability. But then you get into something with extraordinary power and, and enhanced maneuvering capabilities. And it's a whole new ballgame. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let, let me pause you on that just for a minute sure. and just ask you one question then about um, your instructors. You said that they were you know, fleet instructors. They were mostly Vietnam vets. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about culture? Can you talk a little bit about um, rules and constraints and, um, you know, how how footloose and fancy were they with you know, throwing away the rule book and, and getting you prepared as a, as a, you know, an up and coming young fighter pilot um, versus, you know, adhering to what you're supposed to do and, and not breaking any rules and things like that. I think all of them wanted to give you a little taste of what it would be like in the fleet, because in the training command, uh, the whole idea is uh, takeoffs equal landings and we're not going to hurt anybody. Everyone's happy in the fleet. Um, you're actually, doing your flying missions where people might get hurt and or you're, or you're going to drop ordinance on something that may be a little questionable you may have to use uh, a little more discernment so uh, that's i did love flying with some of the seasoned uh, marine corps aviators primarily because of their background which i honored from the, uh, vietnam it was uh, those guys were studs uh Absolutely. I, I don't want to go down that rabbit trail, but absolutely incredible aviators. And every once in a while they say, well, here, here's a, uh, here, here's, here's a different kind of pattern that we would fly dropping a bomb. 
And it'd be one time you go, wow, man, that's the way to throw it. That's the way to drop a bomb. Or that's the way to do a low level. Or that's the way to do a break turn. That's the way to... So wait till you get to the fleet, you'll see this. So every once in a while, you got to taste once if they liked you. I mean, some guys never saw that. and Nobody broke any rules. We didn't do anything, you know, didn't do anything silly. Um, you know, all the silliness is done when you were by yourself in the airplane um, trying to be better than you thought you could be. Um, but most of the instructors were so professional um, that they didn't. Uh, they give you a little taste of the fleet. And, you did not, you know, I think the whole thing was now. Uh, you know, you'd hear, wait till you get to the fleet, wait till you get to the fleet and try this, wait till you get to the fleet and do this in the F4. And you go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Were you expecting to go to the F4 then? Yeah, I actually had F4 orders. I was very excited. Um, I honestly, I still had my picture of the YF 17 that I had in uh, OCS. I still had that in my locker. Um, and I had orders. Uh, F4 orders, which I was very grateful for, because, I mean, you know, the crazy thing about flight training is, like I said, Steve, every, every, you know, you go through all these little wickets from primary uh, to either fixed wing or rotary wing to advanced to, uh, you know, and, and, and now you're going through these other wickets to fly these fighters. So there might only be one F4 available the week you graduate, the year you graduate, the month you graduate. Hmm. And you go, well, who's going to get that F4? I mean, because there's a bunch of A6s out there. No offense. Uh, there's some EA6s out there. You know, that's not what, you know, but the Marine Corps doesn't care what you came for. The Marine Corps doesn't care what you want. Uh, and everyone ended up flying all these airplanes. And they said, hey, Chuck, we got, uh, you're going to get F4s, go to Buford. And I said, Roger that. Um, because they were not given the Hornet out to Nuggets. So a Nugget is a newly minted aviator. And uh, back then in 82, 83, uh, the only folks that were flying the Hornet in the Marine Corps were seasoned aviators. And I understand that you don't want to bring a new airplane out and look foolish with a bunch of young guys doing dumb stuff. So they were all mostly A4 and F4 fighter pilots. Um, now that, that flew the initial cadre of Hornets. Um, so I had F4 orders. I was, I, I was good. I bought a pickup truck and I'm going to Buford. I was going to go be a, you know, go, go fly the great American war machine. I was very, I was, I was okay with it. I mean, not, you know, more than okay. I was excited to fly an airplane that uh, will go down in history as one of the greatest airplanes ever made. So that's kind of neat. Uh, the senior Marine grabbed me before the orders were confirmed and said, Hey, Chuck, uh, how would you like to fly the F-18? I go, well, yeah, I, I mean, that's never told anybody that. I mean, it's just my internal, my wife knew I was married then. I said, this is the airplane I'm going to fly. And, uh, I said, yes, sir. That'd be great. And he goes, well, I can't get you in there right now because you're a nugget, but if you stay here in Kingsville, in this squadron to fly a forwards as an instructor. And uh, it's called the SIRGRAD program. It's not the FATE program, which is kind of a different thing in the Air Force. It's called the SIRGRAD program, service graduate. I don't know. Uh, he says, if you do that for a year to 18 months, I'll get you in a Hornet on the left coast. Because the left coast, the west coast, 
the three horned swarms are at El Toro. They're the only ones uh, in the fleet flying the airplane. And they just got it in 83. So I'm, you know, eight months behind, nine months behind, or a year behind those guys. And I go, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. So uh, I ended up being a SIR grad. It was great. I uh, did it for 13 months, got 400 some hours in the TA4 because I was a road warrior and loved it. It taught me to be a pretty good instructor riding in the back, watching guys hand fist the airplane. And with that roll rate on that airplane, I got airsick pretty easily uh, uh, when I first started flying. And with some of these guys, I would take, I, you know, I just go, hey, man, treat this thing a little nicer. Treat this airplane nice. And, you know, they're slapping your head, cranium off the, off, you know, when you're trying to drop a bomb. And uh, so the instructor tour was great because I learned uh, a lot of ways, of, a lot of things not to do. And, and, uh, and it came very quickly. They said, Hey, you're going to Lamore, California. Um, and it was 84 and you, it was really neat. I was so excited. I went to VFA 125. I left, I left, um, Kingsville with 450 hours in the TA four and feeling pretty good. And I was just really stoked. I still have my pickup truck that I was going to take to Buford, but now I'm going to SoCal to go fly the airplane that I had been looking at for years. And I go, this is just too good. Hmm. Go to, uh, Lemoore and check in. I finally check in VFA 125 and, uh, the class Steve is one of the most classic classes you could ever have. It was the initial cadre of Ra Royal Australian Air Force pilots. So um, a lot of Fozzies uh, consumed uh, with them. And they were all fleet worthy. They were all studs. They were all had a lot of F1 time and whatever they flew over there in Australia. Uh, they were uh, the bulk of the group. And then there was the initial cadre instructors for VFA 106, which was the RAG, and that they were starting up in Cecil Field. So lots of seasoned aviators, and then a dumbass like me, uh, first lieutenant, uh, you know, Sir Grad, and uh, there was a Navy guy, and oh, and then we had a Canadian too. He was the initial Canadian. So our class was like, you're, I'm running with some big dogs because they all had extraordinary amount of time in the airplane. I'm just a little TA4 instructor, you know, so I'm not mousy. I mean, I didn't hide the fact that, you know, but I, I had to run with some real serious characters in that class to, to stay up, to, to stay up with them. And they, uh, they, they helped me and we had the time of our life flying that airplane. Uh, what, what, what did they have over you then? Um, let's, I mean, break that down a little bit then. Where, where, I mean, it sounds like a stupid question to say where was the advantage because perhaps the advantage is obvious, but can you describe the advantage they had? Well, so like, uh, so uh, Jeff Beckett uh, had flown F-104s and F-5s in, uh, out of Cold Lake and Moose Jaw, wherever the heck they are up there. A um, couple thousand hours in airplanes. Now they're transitioning to the Hornet, so he's their guy. Uh, the Aussies all had, they were all commanders or above, except for my closest friend, Barry Kelly. Uh, he had maybe a thousand hours in the F1. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm, I'm showing up 
with 450 hours in the TA4 and a couple landings on a carrier. And, uh, you know, it's just high cotton. I mean, these are all seasoned aviators, which that's, you know, that's what their countries wanted. That's what we wanted. That's what Marine Corps wanted uh, as initial cadre to fly the Hornet. It wasn't uh, given uh, out to newly minted aviators. They wanted seasoned aviators uh, uh so the program would work properly, I guess. So, you know, so there would be success. So, so was it things like um, their understanding of tactics or oh, their, yeah. their ability to work the radar? Um, oh, heck. no, the radar was, you know, uh, the APG, I think it was 65. It was an easy radar to work. Um, the, their, their whole experience would come into low-altitude tactics, uh could, uh, cast missions, uh, deep air strikes, and they've been doing it for years, you know, and you're just hanging out. I mean, I'd copy, I'd look at their briefing cards and try to, you know, look at how they did that. I mean, they were, they were friends. There was no competition there. I mean, everyone's we're now going to be Hornet drivers. So that's great. Um, I just wanted to be, I wanted to, you know, jump in light years to where they were, their years of experience, um, and so there it wasn't an aircraft handling capability. It was just, I think, I guess the more time you're airborne uh, in a fighter, uh, the more seasoned you are, regardless of the fighter. So they came in as seasoned aviators. They were the cream of their crop. I mean, they were the, the Aussie guys that came in. There was no slackers. Mm. And of course, Jeff Beckett from Australia, from Canada came in. He was their weapons officer. So, I mean, these are quality, quality aviators. So, you know, you're running with a, a, a good group. So, so tell us a little uh, slide about the airplane then. It's obviously a full digital fly-by-wire. Um, you're coming from the A4, TA4 where you've just described aircraft having idiosyncrasies based on how well greased the slat is. Um, yeah. what, what, it sounds like night and day. What was the experience? Uh, it was It was stunning. I mean, uh, I loved it. The training was great. But back then they had this uh, uh, computer to aid, uh, some kind of sim, you know, you went through, uh, you know, worked on the computer and, and answered all these questions and boom, you're ready for a flight. But to get into that airplane and watch all those TV tubes light up, I mean, because it looks like a, an appliance it, you know, back in the, you know, this is 30 years ago, but it looked, you know, you get in and it's nothing but TV tubes and buttons, then you fire up. Wow. Then you put the lid down, you put the canopy down, and it's a whisper jet. The engines are so far back, it's so quiet. You go, wow. Then you take off, and it's just magic. I mean, the amazing thing about that airplane, even today, um, I think, is that you're just, you've got about a 25% vote in what parts move on that airplane. <laughs> I mean, uh, with its uh, computer data, uh, computer aided electronics. I mean, you, you may want to turn right, and uh, so you think the left aileron will go down or up, and the other one will go down. And you look back, and the tail's wagging, and everything's moving, and slats are coming out, and you're going, "Holy cow! This thing is magic!" And on a, you solo pretty quickly, and my it was the most amazing. This one, I was just totally on fire. I got the solo, jumped across the uh, Sierra Nevadas and uh, dummy, uh, instead of, you know, doing what you're supposed to do, I 
found highway. I think it's 397 runs north all the way to Reno. And I saw a truck way up there, a big, big old uh, semi. So I got down there right next to him going as fast as that sucker would go. And I blew by him and I pulled straight up and did alarm rolls going all the way up to, you know, 25 or 30,000 feet. And I went, yeah, I'm here. This is, this is bad. This is a badass airplane. I mean, sorry about that, but it was like the airplane was just phenomenal. Just everything about it was, it was, a, it was just beautiful. It was, you could, it was quiet. It was air conditioned. You didn't sweat. You got out of it and you looked like you've never even been a, you know, and we can talk about that later, but I fought some guys and they'd be soaking wet. In a, when they were in another airplane, this one you just walked out like you was just going to do a movie shoot or something. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's nothing to it. Did, Beautiful did, airplane. Did, did the process then of going from um, something that had no radar, no sensors really, uh, to something that was, you know, had a, a good radar, sophisticated radar on the nose, C mode, you know, ground moving target mode, multiple air to air modes. Um, you know, radar warning receiver, you know, full up avionics, INS, um, so on and so forth. Did that process present any challenges to you? Did you have sort of you know, brain, brain fires? Yeah, the training, the training was so good that used the simple things. We didn't have raw gear in the rag. We didn't even know it. I mean, there's a hole down there. I don't know what was in there, uh, covered up where the raw gear normally goes. Um, we didn't mess with that. The radar was very simple. We did not learn uh, extensive sort. You know, you, you know, you learn that in the fleet uh, how to really sort targets and things. It was easy. It was, it was a decent enough radar that you could lock up what you needed and lock up and pass the class uh, or pass your your flight. Um, um, but you didn't really learn any more than you needed to get out to the fleet. So there are a lot of things left untouched. Um, I think going to the boat was probably one of the most colorful things I ever did in the Hornet um, because we were out there, we were going on the Kitty Hawk and I had my closest friends, Barry Kelly and Jeff Beckett, an Aussie and a Canadian. And number four was a disqual from a uh, time before I won't use his name because um, he might be embarrassed. Um, and the lead safe, for some reason, got called down uh, to land. So I'm up there with an Aussie, a Canadian, and a disqual. The disqual is a guy who didn't make it at the boat. So he goes back to training and sits for a couple months till the ship comes out again and then goes again. So you basically, you've got the walking wounded upstairs in the marshal. And for some reason, they call the lead safe down. So I'm number two. And the boss or whoever says, you know, buster, buster, uh, you know, come down. So I bring these guys into the overhead at 600 feet, smoking way too fast. I mean, just dumb fast. And I come around the 90 and I'm so fast, the gear is barely coming out. I didn't overshoot the boat. But I came close enough. All the lights were going wave off, wave off. And my Aussie buddy, who was a, was a great pilot, he actually was able to recover his airplane and uh, do a touch and go. And then the Canadian did the same. The Disqual did the same. But I, I brought him in way too fast and broke at the bow. You don't, you know, if you're just an idiot, 
new guy and you're breaking the bow, you're really showing you're, you're really shining your backside and it's not a smart move, but, and in fact, the boss goes, who the hell is leading that thing? And they go, it's, it's a Marine. We got an Aussie, a Canadian in a disc crawl. How in the heck did that happen? It was really, I mean, it was, a, it was just one of those goat ropes and it was hysterical, but they called me down. I go, okay, I'm coming. But uh, yeah, it was a little, it was, that was a little bit of a cluster. We recovered and, and looked pretty good, but uh, yeah, that was, the Hornet was what a pleasure to get in that airplane. I mean, it was just, and everything was ergonomically, it's actually built by pilot input. So you have to reach behind your back to do anything. Everything was on the hotel's hands in front of the stick. Anything you else needed on the radar was all just very, very user-friendly. It was, it was a pleasure. It was really just, just a pleasure to get in. What was it like to fly them? Because it sort of famously, it has, I think, unlimited angle of attack. No, there's no limitation there. Um, or maybe there is, but uh, t- tell us well, about it. Thrust has a little bit to do with it, but um, honestly, uh, we had these. Uh, I'll go back to this, and, and this is going to, you know, all the C, I only flew A models and B models. So the C model folks will. If they ever see this, we'll go, well, that's, that's different now. Um, we had these things that were called PROMs, pro, programmable read-only memory. And so they were basically different prototypes going down the line. So we had some, I remember this one couple airplanes that were called, they were 5.3 PROM aircraft, meaning uh, you could not take them to a tanker, you could not do high altitude work in them because they had unlimited the capability. They were more capable than the aviator. All right, so you didn't want a student getting in some of these airplanes that were so highly sensitive. Uh, in fact, we had uh, an F four driver who I won't mention his name, but he came in and did a crosswind landing at Lemoore and did the typical, uh, you know, stick down into the wind landing, which you would do in an F four because you know that airplane is not going to get airborne anyway. You just want to keep it on the runway once it hits the ground. Um, but you do that to the Hornet, and you turn it into a wheelbarrow. And this guy did, and he went off the runway, you know, using F4 input. So yeah. you had to fly the airplane the way you were taught to fly it, not the way it's not an F4, it's not an A4, it's, it is a Hornet. And you better learn how to, even though it's a tinker toy, it looks like a tinker toy, it's all electric. It, it'll bite you. Those stabs are huge. Mm. You put... So the angle of attack was, you know, once it, you could do things in the airplane that you just couldn't believe. I mean, you can be nose low at 125 knots and pull the nose through the horizon. I mean, yeah. that's impressive. Um, you can't do that. And anything else you're doing a death spiral with nose low at that airspeed. Yeah. You know, you got nothing to, I mean, there's nothing you can do with it. I mean, you can't shoot a missile. It's going to gimbal and fall off the rail. Uh, you know, you know, but you, you're pointing at a guy, they're just going to run away, <laughs> but it's impressive. It's like that Cobra thing or whatever you want to do with an airplane. You can do it, but what's next, yeah. you know, but it, it was a whole new dynamic when you're sitting there 85 degrees nose up and maneuvering the airplane, you're going, this is pretty impressive. It's a whole new dynamic from a four. So, so what did you do in terms of, um, sort of tactical stuff at the at the rag then you know before you went to 
you know, the, the fleet squadron. Did you get to fly against uh, TA-4s? Did you get to fly against F-5s? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, there was a couple of aggressor squadrons. There was one, uh, I think it was VA-127. Uh, they were A-4s. Top Gun would come up all the time for the instructors when they were down at Miramar. They'd come up. Uh, uh, we would do a air-to-ground debt up in Fallon, Nevada, mm-hmm. and they they had a great facility up there. We flew real tactics. We flew close air support. We flew deep air strikes. Uh, we did everything that you would do in the fleet, um, just not to the sophistication you would do in the fleet. I mean, there were you didn't have training wheels on. You were these were real missions. I mean, we went, if we did a deep air strike and you were leading it and I never led one because I was just, you know, a young guy, but the Aussies, they'd lead one. And man, it, it was full out. This is a combat mission. And we're, and so the rag was, you were, you were ready to go. Uh, so if you got to, when you got to a gun squadron or a fleet squadron, you're, you're ready to play. You weren't going to go hide in the back for six months while they got you up to speed. I, and I think that's, I was out at Lamar last year or earlier this year. Well, it was last year now. And uh, they're, they're still doing the same thing. These, these, these guys going through the rag they're, and girls, uh, they're ready to go. So when they get a boat, if they're, if the boat's out there, they're ready to go into harm's way. Uh, the training was, we did everything. We did uh, a crazy nuke mission, which you just thought, are you kidding me? But, and everyone had to fly it, and you had to plan your own, own mission. It was uh, a lot of missions in the Hornet, which, you know, that's that's a different story for your Hornet drivers. Uh, to be the jack-of-all-trades is uh, very difficult, very difficult. But, but what did what did you struggle with? I mean, it, found, it seems like, you know, I, I get the sense. We, we've talked before, and, and when we were talking before we hit record, and... I get the sense you're not, um, you know, sort of, you know, prima donna type personality. But it it sounds like you 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 sort of I don't want to say breeze through this, but you. I struggled through everything. I mean, everything was work. It was not. I wasn't in the bar every night. I mean, maybe after a flight, but I was I was always prepared. And I if I struggled with anything, it was close air support. Close air support is such a dynamic. So air to air, I, I think felt really good. Close air support, I felt like if I don't hit, you know, you get your nine line brief, and if I don't hit this on time, someone's going to get hurt. My guys are going to get hurt. My Marines are going to get hurt. That put an extra pressure. You know, air to air is just me against someone else, and, well, whatever. Um, on the ground, closer so deep air strikes were easy. They weren't that well timed. I mean, yeah, you got here then or. But closer to support, then they, you know, of course, you change the dynamic, change the dynamic, change the timing. So, okay, now you got to slow it down. So now I'm, you know, down there at 500 feet, slowing down. So now you're easy to shoot at instead of doing 540 or whatever you're, you're going to do your attack at. And so closer support to me was really tough. And the guys that can do that, my hat's off because the time, it's kind of like, <laughs> it's kind of like watching the national anthem and that the, the song, the, the, whoever's singing it holds their line as long as I can until they see the fighter come over and then they finally run out of gas and here comes the fighter 30 seconds later or something. You go, that's bad. That's not what you want to do. So you want to be there at the end of the note. 
So that's the same, same thing with cast. When they call you in, man, go so-and-so, you get here at this time and you're going, oh man, I'm, you're smoking through the mountains to get there. And all of a sudden they go change to order. Now you're writing it down on your thing. And, uh, you know, and back then we didn't have the sophistication that may be today on, on changing times. They were, it was very rudimentary. Uh, when I did it, it was very mechanical and it was intense. I mean, you, didn't want to be early and you didn't want to be late. So that's, I think I struggle with cast on close air support just due to the stress of, you know, I didn't mind it. If I had to go really, really fast, I didn't care how many, you know, how, how fast the airplane's great. It will do it. It's just going slow, you know, slowing down and doing a couple of turns out in the middle of some bad guy country to get in there. That's that cast is tough. I, my hats off to the guys and gals that you can do cast well. I think you you mentioned earlier this would have been around 1984 or so. Mm-hmm. So, what sort of weapons would you have been training with? Mark 82s, Mark 83s. So, unguided. So we did uh, we 84s. We did CBUs. We did uh, uh, walleyes. You know, oh, you the did walleyes. Walleye that, okay. Well, heck yeah. So that's a TV pass of an F4. They had a, yeah, they had a glide path of an F4. They uh, didn't do well. Um, but big, you know, 800 pound warhead, and they were kind of fun to watch go off. But um, yeah, we trained in every, uh, I think everything that's used today, we didn't obviously didn't have AMRAMs. We never shot missiles. We shot uh, Zunis, five inch, and I think we might have done some 2.75s. We, 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 um, but you do, were you doing LGB deliveries? Did you have uh, GBU 12, oh, sure. GBU 10? We had a, we had LSTs and FLIRs on the airplane. Oh, okay. they're, they're so we could we could do we always needed a mule like to have a mule on the ground to give us a laser uh to do laser guided. You didn't do that in the RAG, uh in the replacement squadron. You did that at the fleet squadron. That's a fleet squadron level kind of deal. So that was was that the AT FLIR pod? AT FLIR pod? Was that the pod you had then? I don't know. We carried it. We, oh, yeah. I, I don't know what it was called. Okay. It took a lot of drag and like that, you know. But, uh, I think the squadron that and you know the squadron I was in. I'd uh, love to tell you about how I got in this squadron. It's so much fun, but I don't know how much time you have. I've got, um, I've got time for that story for sure. Well, okay. So I'm in the RTU, and we're getting ready to go to the boat. All us, the Canadians and the Aussies, uh, only only one Aussie, one Canadian went to the boat. The old guys said, no, we're not doing that. Um, so we were doing workups out of uh, Yuma, Arizona, and you'd fly out to San Clemente at night and do bounces, FCLPs, field carrier landing practices. And uh, it just so happened that this, um, this one Hornet squadron was at Yuma doing an air-to-ground de- deployment. And it's a, a brand new squadron. I mean, uh, brand new squadron. And I knew a couple of the guys that were in there because they were cert grads. They were instructors of mine when I went through uh, Kingsville. So I walk in the bar with my little, you know, I'm very proud to be an F-18 student. Uh, not that proud, but proud enough to wear it. Uh, so I'm in the bar and they see me and they go, hey, come up here you got to meet so-and-so and so-and-so. And so now this is the entire squadron. And these guys are all, there's only a couple former Sergrads and the rest of them are all F4 guys. And the squadron commander, who's a friend of mine, who I think you need to talk to one day, is a Marine icon. He flew 652 missions in Vietnam in the F4. Uh, 
He is he, he led the largest Marine Air Ground Task Force in history uh, during Desert Storm. And uh, and he's a great friend. And they they called me up to the bar and they knew that, you know, you know, for not being a big guy, I still have a big attitude. It's kind of one of those things. And um, uh, and I hear this and he's from Germany and the story I won't give up the story on him, but I'd love to have you talk to him or we can talk about him another time. But he goes, all right, boys, let's let's roll. Let's roll the bones. Uh, so out come the dice. This is the whole squatter and this and me. Uh, and I, my other little students are sitting over there at a ch- uh, table. And so I'm rolling the bones with the squadron and uh, it gets down to me and the skipper, Manfred Reach. And uh, I beat him with like five sixes. I just, just drop the mic moments and I walk back. And I hear him immediately say to our opso, which at the time was uh, the opso of the squadron was Bob Fulton, Carrick Fulton, and the assistance opso officer, Bob Fulton was a great Top Gun instructor uh, and great aviator. And then the assistant opso officer was a guy named Andy Allen, who was an a- who became an astronaut. And all I hear in this German voice is, hire that man <laughs> as I walk away. So you know, uh, long story short, went to the boat, did my thing and uh, came back and I had orders to one squadron and they changed them to go into Manfred's squadron. Uh, and that's where I really learned how to fly an airplane. And that man, uh, I can tell you more stories. Oh my gosh. Uh, he, he was amazing, amazing leader of men. And you would, uh, he'd say, follow me boys. And you, you know, these days, someone says, follow me. You kind of look around and go, well, well maybe not. <laughs> this guy, you'd make a hole for him. And uh, extraordinary individual, extraordinary aviator, great history. And uh, I can tell a lot of Fokker stories um, and being in that squadron and really learn how to fly that airplane. I was, I was, um, you get into BFM and you talk about three-dimensional and orthogonal type movements. Uh, that's where I learned how to really admire what the airplane could do and really learn from, we always fought Top Gun. Top Gun would come up. They were only 50 miles south of us. So they'd come up and want to, you know, rip up some Hornets. And they drilled me like a soft piece of pine a lot of times. Yeah. And they loved that. And I hated it. And uh, I hated it so much that uh, on Fridays were 1v1 days. I'll never forget it. Manfred always uh, cleaned the airplanes off. And we do one v ones, and I, I got beat up pretty badly as the new lieutenant, you know, the new guy, and uh, I didn't like that. So I figured out, you know, I just, I I worked really hard and said, this ain't going to happen anymore. Because when I go home on Friday night, it, not only was I miserable, but my wife was miserable. So it was a miserable weekend. So I showed back up Monday, and uh, I, you know, talking with these guys and Manfred was great help on. This is how you move. This is how you move this airplane. This way. This is how you do this at this airspeed. This is how you. And it was all chasing your watch, but it was all the dynamics were so that you, then you get up there and you do it. And you go after a f- six months of getting drilled, um, you know, because I'm stubborn. Uh, I actually got pretty good at it, and I really liked Fridays. And Fridays were great, uh, <laughs> and then she was happy. My wife was happy too. Everyone's happy on the weekend now. So uh, Fridays. 
Fridays were my favorite day uh, uh, after a while, but Manfred was such a great mentor. We'd go to lots of red flags because the Hornet was uh, new. And uh, in we'd fly both the morning and the afternoon, which is verboten in the Air Force. You can't fly two missions a day. Uh, we'd fly both and in between he'd go slide. Let's go do a 1v1. So everyone else is going to lunch. Really? Manfred and I are going out doing a 1v1. Wow. I mean, that's the kind of care he took. And I'll never forget the first time the Hornet, we brought the Hornet east of the Mississippi uh, to Tyndall Air Force Base. And I, like I said, I was just a young guy. And uh, so Sunday we show up, they give us our squadron spaces. We're fighting F-15As instructors and giving the students a look at this new airplane. One of their weapons officers wrote a white paper on the F-18 said it was uh, essentially a replacement for the A-7 and the F-4. It's high wing loaded. It's uh, low maneuverability, poor thrust to weight ratio. And so they're all in the bar uh, having beers and it's about 1800. And I show up with this point paper and I go, Skipper, look at this. <laughs> he calls a maintenance officer. It was a guy named Binskin. He goes, Benny, take the pines off, take the tanks off. We're going to kick some ass. <laughs> So they'd never seen the Hornet before. So for four days straight, we went out and smoked them. In, you know, you go out and do comparisons, you just run away from them. You go do uh, perch setups and you just rip it. You know, the, airplane, the airplane could maneuver pretty well um, if you knew how to fly it. And after the fourth day, one of the commanders, I think it was at the second squadron at Tyndall goes, can you have your weapons officer give us a brief on your airplane because we don't even, we're not getting it. <laughs> and uh, the Hornet, that's the first time it ever got to the East Coast. It was pretty cool. It was kind of cool. We took that airplane to Egypt, you know, and I ended up going 2v7 with MiG-21s over Inchos Air Base in Egypt. And it was it was fun being in a new airplane. It was fun with that new airplane smell and everything about it was just phenomenal. Can, can you... Um describe how it was then in, in those early days of you having arrived at the squadron, how you were getting beaten. What was it that you were not doing that you should have been or that you were doing that you shouldn't have been doing? I didn't, I didn't understand. I did. I understood lateral movement and vertical movement. I didn't understand what was in between. So everything to me in your training command, everything's like lateral. You're just, you're breaking right. You're breaking left, but you're not taking the airplane sp turn it upside down, then pulling it right back up, then rolling. It, it, I didn't, I didn't have that down in my head. Mm. And once I got it, then I realized, you know, the, you know, the vertical and the horizontal are simple. Anyone can do that. It's just, but it was that, that anticipation of what the other guy is doing and how you're driving that guy to make him do what he's doing and how you can best optimize your airplane depending on where you are in the flight envelope and what your airspeed is. I mean, if you're too fast, you got to get out of burner. If you're doing a 1v1 and you're at 500 knots, well, you're, you know, that's not the Hornet's corner speed. you got to you got to slow down a whole bunch to get that airplane to rate at 20 plus degrees per second. If you, I mean, you have to understand these things. You have to know these things. You have to, you have to, you have to know what your strengths and weaknesses are and then how to pursue them. And that was the art and I learned that from the Top Gun guys that always came in and said, man, you got to do this with this. Try doing this one time. And you go, oh, damn. 
just unload the airplane. The airplane accelerates fairly well, even the A model. Um, uh, and you can do, and you know, I learned about zero G and negative G. I've never, you know, hell, I, except for dumbass stuff in the T2, never did stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's a good way to get your airspeed back. It's a good way to, you know, uh, get ready for your next pull or your next, you know, the Hornet was so easy. You could just put your feet on the TV tubes and pull all day long. Um, but sooner or later, you're going to run out of airspeed and ideas. Uh, so it was, it, you, once you got to that higher level on how to make that airplane dance, it was spectacular. It was, and that's where you had to be. So when I first started flying it, I was just a lateral guy, a vertical guy, you know, and pretty easy to beat. I didn't understand the vector, you know, it's just basically taking an airplane and put a stick on the back of it. And this is where you're going the whole time. So, but, you know, it's just, I think that, you know, it's probably not a great explanation. It was a lot more feel, but you had to understand where the airplane was. And, and the crazy thing about the Hornet was so quiet, you could be doing 700 or 70 knots and you had no idea. Yeah. You're, you're up above the rail, you're looking through the HUD, the engines are way back there, and it is a whisper jet. It is so quiet. It is just so bloody quiet. It's just you sitting in there. And so here you are fighting. You're, you're driving this thing, or it's driving you, and you've got to figure out how to max perform it at 180 knots or 310 knots, and how are you going to be on the end, the edge of the envelope for that airplane in that certain dynamic, and what can you do with it? And if you get yourself in a bad position, get out of it quickly. And that's the stuff, that's the higher level, that's the graduate level stuff. And I was lucky enough to be in a squadron of great, great fire pilots. It's, that's what we talked about at night. You know, my wife, you know, we'd go on debts and, you know, the wives have a network. And I said, you know, your husband was out till two in the morning. She goes, yeah, I know exactly what he was doing. He was chasing his watch. Mm-hmm. We'd sit there and we'd talk about airspeed, how you would, how nose low you would go. You wouldn't go 80 degrees, you'd go 45 degrees nose low. Then you'd pull back at six and a half Gs, not eight, not seven Gs, not, you know, and then you'd unload, then you would roll. And, and that's the dynamics of the BFM environment is it's so fluid that if you're not driving, you learn to drive. If you're not driving the fight, then you're going to drive. You're going to look, you're going to get beat. So you've got to learn how to drive the fight, mm-hmm. depending on what your adversary is doing. And that is, that is max performing your airplane. And at the end of the day, you know, when you're fighting all these guys, you're fighting F-16s, F-15s. It really gets down to the driver, the guy driving. You know, maybe I never fought a girl. I'm sorry, um, but you know, it really gets down to the aviator. Um, how they can best perform their airplane. I've seen some F-16s do magical things. And I've been done so many times, you know, I'm, I'm, my, you know, my neck is a mess. I can't turn around anymore. I'm, you know, so I've, been, I've been gunned so many times by other airplanes, but that's how you learn. Hmm. So you're referring to looking back behind you and pulling Jesus. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah, that's that. I mean, I put, I think I was the first one to put 10 and a half Gs on a, Hornet. Yeah, that was ugly. All you heard was a grunt from me. Yeah, it was awful. The hug film. Yeah, I was just a dumbass. And uh, I didn't, I read about transonic pitch, but didn't really believe it. What's, 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 that, what's that then? That's you just, what, what is it? Transonic pitch? Yeah. 
Uh, that's why you, why you're, you're, you know, I was doing 1.1 or something. I got jumped by some phantoms out of, you know, a bunch of reservists out of Homestead and uh, didn't see him. My flight lead was, I don't know where he was, but he didn't help me. And I saw him. So uh, transonic pigeons, actually. Uh, so, you know, if you're supersonic and you're putting on G's on the airplane, yeah, it'll start to maneuver, start to maneuver. But when you get transonic, which is, you know, in between supersonic and subsonic, now the stabs will dig in your st- your stabilators when you're pulling. So I might have been pulling five Gs, and I knew what transonic pitch was. And I go, this isn't going to work. And I kept pulling. And I got on the limiter and then uh, hit the transonic range, and it went right to ten point five. And uh, all you hear from me is a oof. And by the way, I'm I'm five ten, but I think I was six one at the time. But all twenty eight vertebrae compressed, and uh, I'll never forget it. I went. Uh, Brought limp the airplane home. It was a new record. We have a Mac everywhere we went. We had a Mac Air rep because the airplane was new, and uh, 10.5 G's on it couldn't hide it. It was on the hood, so um, I parked the airplane, and I immediately went to the class six store. Bought two cases of Bush Light, and everyone went to the bar but me. And I went uh, uh, back to the line check with the troops, and I pulled panels with the troops, and we drank beer. And I said, "I'm sorry, I broke your airplane." Mm. But, yeah. So, so the curious sort of part of me wonders why the fly-by-wire system in the aeroplane didn't prevent those stabs from digging in like that. I mean, presumably that they must, they Mac Air must have known about the transonic region too. And um, Every, everyone, does, uh, well, uh, that's operator technique. There's no question. You blame right. it on the pilot. No, you, you blame it on the pilot. But you, but you said you, you could only. Um, really affect 25% of the control service deflection or, or movement. Um, you know, it's just hard to, you can't put office hours on an airplane. I mean, you, you can't get, you can't put an, you know, you can't get, you know, you're not going to blame the airplane for something some fool did. So mm-hmm. it was a foolish move. It was, it was a learning, learning uh, event. Um, I, I guess I could have blamed the airplane. I just sucked it up and said that was not smart on my part. But uh, yeah, that's a that's a good technical question. Why that airplane do that? I, I don't. Might have been one of those early ones, but uh, I I don't know if you can still do that. Um, but I know I did it. <laughs> <laughs> so so what um, was your was your sort of course of uh, your your Hornet career from from that point then? So you you were in your first fleet squadron. Am I right in thinking you went to Top Gun? Oh yeah, yeah I. Uh, um, I guess they were, you know, there's a bell curve at Top Gun every once in a while. They want me to let someone slide under the door. And uh, that was me. Uh, I did go to Top Gun. I also went to uh, the Marine uh, Weapons School, which is WTI, which Top Gun, I had already had a lot of time in the airplane. Top Gun was like a finishing school uh, in the air to air world. the squadron I was in was so good that when I went to Top Gun, I probably had maybe 700 hours in the airplane. And so I was pretty good with the airplane. Top Gun made me better. Uh, WTI, uh, the Marine Weapons School, is a beast. Hmm. I mean, it was mostly focused on the Marine and Air Ground Task Force and, and dropping ordnance. Um, but very difficult course. So together, I did both of those. And then um, I'm very great. I mean, it was 
really rewarding uh, time. Uh, and then went overseas to uh, to book uh, no 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 to um, Yetchan, Korea, which if you look on the map, uh, you won't you won't see it. But if you're running out of gas anywhere in Korea, it sucks so bad it'll pull you in. Um, it is a uh, it's a it's a Republic of Korea. Um, it's like twenty nine palms in Korea, so it's a hardship tour for those the rock folks. Um, but it's probably the best time I ever had in my life. Right. Uh, the JOs, we we had a blast. There's like 15 of us living in a tent. We all lived in tents through the winter and summer, uh, six six seven months, and uh, deployed all around the Far East. Just having we had an absolute riot. Um, weren't living in nice quarters. Hotter than hell in the summer. We had smudge pots. Uh, you showered in the morning with 340 of your closest friends and you walked on sandbags. It looked like something out of mash. This is so bad. And when it's raining in the summer, the sandbags are covered with water and mud. So you're in your flip-flops and uh, you're walking to the shower tent. But then when you walk back to your hooch or your tent, your feet are just covered in mud. And you know, this, this just sucks. But we had more fun. We had more fun flying against the Air Force uh, F-16s out of uh, Kunsan, and then uh, the Fiends out of uh, Osan. Uh, if we just had a blast. And that's when, you know, you do stuff that you can only do when you're on debt. Like, we started messing with the senior officers. I think I might have started it, but the senior officers, they had a, a nicer tent, and they, uh, they seemed you know, majors and above. And they took in the warrants with them, the CWO3s or 4s if we had one. And uh, so we started messing with them at night. And, and so they started messing back with us. So we'd mess with them in a way like, you know, you're in the tent and you've got the mosquito name. And we'd reach in and grab a guy by the back in the middle of the night. And you'd, you'd hear this major, this stud of a major, a football player, cry like a girl. Because there's there was there was bugs there was rats it was a nasty place to live, and so they would you know we'd go out flying and they'd send someone in and nail our shower shoes to the floor, <laughs> so you go to put your shower shoes on and they're nailed in. So I said okay we're this is the last day six months and we had a great time I mean we were just really tight the squadron was great, and I said okay, it's a midnight TOT and we have these massive halon fire extinguishers. I said, I'll get, and so we were doing a cast mission with Halon to the executive officers. That's the CEO, the XO, all the, all the higher ranking guys, except for us JOs. And on time, we hit these Halon fire extinguishers and then ran away. And all you could see was white smoke coming out of the side of the tent. And these guys were covered in white dust. And uh, of course, you know, we were run away like a bunch of little kids and get in our tents and we think we're really cool. And uh, so we go flying. It was the day before we left. So we go flying uh, and everyone had, we were taking the Freedom Bird home. We were going back on Tiger Air or something. And so you had to wear your utilities. You couldn't wear a flight suit because there's going to be a, an arrival, uh, but we were arriving in a, a civilian transport and 
everyone had their utilities. You're living in a tent, but you still had a hangar or something where your utilities were. And someone went in and cut off all the buttons on our utilities. And so we go in formation. So they call formation. And, you know, formation is not a joke. It is uh, 350 people on the flight line. And all of our blouses are wide open. And we look like crap. And the CO comes by with his chief warrant officer and he gives me these two bags of buttons. He goes, <laughs> you assholes better have these buttons sewn back on by the time we land in El Toro. And because every J.O. was in their blouses wide open, blowing in the wind. And, and so that was a payback for the uh, Halon uh, experience. But, uh, you know, living in tents and flying fighters, it was a great, great time. I mean, so. And that's, you know, it's funny. I was the, uh, they call it pilot training officer. Air Force calls it weapons officer. I was a pilot training officer. And we got so bored. Uh, we had guys, you know, they wanted to be astronauts and stuff. So I'd write fake orders and send them to them. And they'd say, hey, go to, go to, the, o, go to the O3 uh, and there's some orders for you. And you'd see this guy jumping up and down. He's, <laughs> he's going to astronaut training. <laughs> no, you're not. You're not. So I ended up, so honestly, I ended up uh, getting orders there to go to fly F-15s. And, and I go, no, I don't believe it. Screw you guys. And I know you need to contact, you need to contact headquarters Marine Corps in the next three days. And I go, I don't believe it. It's not true. But the skipper, you know, that's how much we mess with each other. Nobody trusted anything after yeah. that. Once we started messing with each other, you know, Bob's your uncle. Nobody believed anything anyone would say. But, uh, then I got the orders to fly the Eagle. So what I, I want to do, Sly, is, is ask one more question, and then we'll um, call it a day. And our next interview, we'll talk about your uh, exchange on the F-15, and which will lead nicely into your um, experience in, in Desert Shield and Desert Storm. But so the last question I wanted to ask was around about MiGs. So you'd said that you went and flew against those MiG-21s in Egypt. Did yeah. you, when you were flying at Red Flag or when you went through Top Gun, did you have an opportunity to go through Constant Peg uh, or to I fly? Did. You did. Uh, I got to fly against a good friend of yours, uh, a friend that I, I saw earlier who uh, we'll probably talk about next time. Okay. Um, I, it was a very fortunate thing. There were uh, several Marines up there, and once you were briefed, um, if there was an open period, uh, I would get a call, and so I'd bring up, someone and we'd go uh play against uh the f4s and the f5s up there at the dog bone and up at tonopah yes we've got plenty of opportunity to do that it was fun do you think um i mean maybe this is a question for next time around but we're on the, we're on the topic so I'll, I'll i'll ask anyway but do you think that, that that was in any way um sort of instrumental in 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 the confidence that you may have then felt when you went to war for real uh, you know, yeah, I think these things up front. No question. Uh, the group up there in Tonopah were extraordinary. And, you know, uh, we did have NCTR, which is no, you can talk about that now. And when you see MiG 21, MiG 23, you know, coming at you, it does change your mentality very quickly instead of seeing an F 18 or F 15. You know, you just go, oh, yeah, this is what we're training again. This is what. And those guys could fly those airplanes. They were really, really good. So it, it did get, it, there was no, we'll talk about it, but it's different, but it was great training. It was phenomenal training. 
Okay. Right. I, I mean, I, I wanted to, I do want to explore a bit more about the time you spent as a student at Top Gun, but, but maybe we'll roll that into the part two that of this interview. Great. That sounds great. Thanks for tuning in to 10 Century. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe, and if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks, and take care.